0: This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top of the line products at forneyind.com. That's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.
1: Hey y'all, Rick Houston here and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional Wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel-lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built? I bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had the the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, A.K.A. Dr. Daniel Pierce of U.N.C. Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then, the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the <laughs> boat. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steel when Junior got tangled up in a in a wire fence. <laughs> so check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Through all of that,
3: Greg Pollock stayed true to me what he said he would do, and I really couldn't ask of anything else. You know, proud of what I did, but just don't have the trophy and the and the and the big ring to show for it. But. uh, uh it was uh it was uh, a, a letdown but you yes, that's the way racing is. I remember having to go to Richard Childress's motorhome in Atlanta in the infield on a Thursday afternoon and telling him that I wasn't going to take his offer. Kenny loses it on the bottom, he gets bumped and loses it on the bottom and does, and misses the rear bumper of my car by inches. And takes everybody out behind me.
4: The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve
1: Wade. And my name is Rick Houston. And welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. America's Racing Show place and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Now, Steve, I can't believe that I didn't do this last week when we talked about Jason Keller, but I believe it's time that we introduce the world to Hearsay the Monkey.
4: Ah, who?
1: (laughs) Back in 2008, Jeannie had opposition for her seat on the bench. And my contribution to her election strategy was to go out and buy a little stuffed monkey and take it on the road with me to the races that I was doing for TNT at that time and take a picture of the monkey that we named hearsay, you know, hearsay law court. Okay. I I got it. Yeah, I I
4: got it.
1: Okay. All right. And I thought I'd take it on the road with me and take a picture of hearsay with a little sign that said vote for genie at all these different locations. That was kind of like a flat Stanley deal, but hearsay is anything but flat. He is a Houston. He is stuffed. (laughs) (laughs) Hearsay showed up at the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, Daytona Beach at the University of Michigan football stadium. He went with me to New Hampshire. He made it to the base and to the very top of the Space Shuttle launch pad. And Jeannie won the election. So Hearsay had his little bit part to play in that.
4: Yeah, Rick, all I can say is you are a campaign genius. (laughs) She (laughs) won.
1: (laughs) And after the election, we were like, well, let's see where else Hearsay can visit. I got involved with several authors on a book about the Apollo moon landings, and the editor on that project lives in Australia. So I see Hearsay to Colin, who in turn shipped him to one of the other co-authors in Belfast, Northern Ireland. From there, he went to my cousin, who was then in the army and stationed in Germany. Matt then took Hearsay with him. To Iraq, Hearsay has his own combat patch from the first armored division. Hearsay has been to Africa, he's been to Canada, Israel, he's been on the flight deck of the space shuttle Atlantis. But my great regret is that I did not take him with me when I went to England for the pre-production meetings on the mission control documentary. With all that travel log in mind, Hearsay also rode shotgun with Jason Keller during the October 2009 Nationwide Series race at Charlotte. Now, Jason qualified 19th. He finished two spots better, one lap down to race winner Kyle Busch. But Hearsay was right there next to Jason. Tie wrap to the roll bars.
4: Well, I got to tell you something, Rick. I am very impressed. Hearsay is a true world traveler. Now, if he had been with me, it wouldn't be anything like that at all. Maybe he'd go out to the, you know, neighborhood pub or, or, you know, that's about it <laughs> For, with me. Tim
1: Flock had Jocko Flocko. Yeah. And Jason, Jason. had hearsay. <laughs> hearsay. Yeah. <laughs> this week in our first segment, Dell Earnhardt Jr. vows vengeance on Jason, who's facing pressure to win Dell Jr. or no Dell Jr. Jason then gets hooked up with team owner, Greg Pollux and winds up twice finishing second in the Bush series standings and loyal to Greg, Jason turned down an offer of a partial Winston cup schedule with legendary team owner, Richard Childress.
4: Now, Jason had to be very, very loyal to turn down an offer like that. you ask me. And wait until you hear the rest of the story on that one. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the April 15th, 1999 issue of Winston Cup scene. Rusty Wallace puts a whooping on the field at Bristol while several of his competitors are driving hurt after accidents at Texas. After the checkered flag, rather than doing the donuts he detested other drivers doing, Rusty honors his late friend, Alan Kowicki, with a backward victory lap. Jason Keller wins for the first time in nearly four years while his teammate. Jeff Green and Jeff's wife, Michelle, get into a bit of a set-to with Jeff Bodine. Andy Graves gets help from his dad at Hendrick Motorsports. And Richard Petty gets his picture taken with a group of supermodels.
4: You are kidding, Rick. No, sir. Now, I know how Linda Petty feels when Richard kissed that gal in that Petty movie. You remember that?
1: Yes, we talked about that just a few
4: weeks ago. If she knew about this, I don't think she'd be very happy about it at all.
1: Now, they were just on some kind of roller coaster or some kind of NASCAR ride at Disney World. So it was very innocent, but he was still with Supermoms.
4: At Disney World, no less. At Disney World. Come on. (laughs) Steve, you've had your picture taken with
1: Richard. I've had my picture taken with Richard. Which do you think he enjoyed more? Having his picture taken with me, you, or the supermodels.
4: The supermodels. Are you kidding me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Steve, we need that Patreon support. That's the bottom line, period. And listeners, if you can possibly help us out, you can do that at patreon.com slash the same podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, You can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. So you had what, two or three years of Slim Jim sponsorship. Really stable company?
3: Well, uh, Really, I didn't have that many years. I didn't okay. have that many years with, uh, with, with uh, the Slim Jim folks. As a matter of fact, it's kind of funny that you, we're talking about Slim Jim because I've often heard Dale Jr. talk about he still owes me one from a Myrtle Beach race, you know, and that was when I was driving the Slim Jim car. But what is not really told in that whole story is you got a, you got a young guy like myself trying to manage the team. One of the higher-profile sponsors in the series. Pressure was on pretty good. Just had my son at that time. He was born in April, my birthday. And we go to Myrtle Beach, and I knew I was only a handful of cars that I had to outrun, and I could win a race. And And I felt like if I won a race in the Slim Jim Sponsorship... Even as bad as some of the other races had gone, I'd made a change with Addington and, and different things that I could really, you know, I could salvage this thing. Let's just keep it going. And I, I guess, but what what I'm hearing that that, that Junior says is I, I on the start of the race. I, I remember not qualifying as well as I thought I should. And at that time, David Green was driving the uh, ninety-five car, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember getting in, but getting into it. I qualified in the teens, uh, maybe 12, 13, 14. So I'm like, I got to get there fast. You know, I got to get there. And I I really messed up myself in qualifying because I should have qualified like a driver. I should have qualified a little bit better, but still – And I got kind of banged up on. I guess I I, we got banged, and and Junior still says he owes me one. But I wasn't focused on Junior. I was probably the only person in in South Carolina that was in Myrtle Beach (laughs) that wasn't focused on Dell Junior. But I was not. I was not focused on Dell Junior at all. I was focused on David Green, uh, Mike McLaughlin. I was focused on those guys because I knew that was my my one of my biggest shots of that year with that sponsorship to get a win. And with me qualifying bad, I was already put myself behind and. And uh, David Green ended up winning the race, and I ended up running second to David. So I mean, I uh, and then the Slim Jim thing kind of, you know, sort of went away, you know, after that. And uh, really didn't know what I was going to do. And then uh, uh, Greg Pollack called, and uh, was able to put some things together, and had a had a lot
1: more races after that. So I was very very blessed for that you had talked about not really considering the cup stuff before because you were so concentrated on your own team when greg called what was the difference were you just to that point where you knew that you had to do something or slim jim you might had be out? Si-
3: slim jim had asked me to go with another team they knew my team wasn't um wasn't performing like we needed to and They'd asked me to go to another team and I said, No, nah, I'm not gonna do it. I stayed loyal to what I had, I'm not gonna do it. I didn't have another I didn't have another sponsor to replace them. So the word kinda got out at the end of the year there that I was gonna sell my my team, basically. And I remember some of the crew guys calling and they felt bad for even asking me if I was gonna sell my team. Uh and uh I was like, man, I got I to survive. You know, I got to do something. I either got to go drive for somebody else. I don't have a sponsorship uh, uh, put in place. And I remember Greg Pollitts calling me and he said, look, he he'd, he'd, uh, had to, had to deal with, with Chad Little and uh, they won, won several races and that had gone away. Not really sure why that went away, but he said, I don't have a team. I don't have a car. I don't have a hauler. don't have anything. Do you want to kind of do this together? I said, well, I don't have any money to operate it. I got a few pieces, you know, fortunate enough. I got gears, transmission, and a few cars, and, and a hauler. I said, but will you take this, and let's try to make something of it? And uh, that's kind of the way all that went down. And he took it and actually drove the first year. I'm wanting to say it was 97 or eight, 97 maybe? I think 98. 98? Yeah. Okay. And he basically ran that ran that deal out of his pocket, and and that's why I felt then so loyal to him. And and he and and he was he did what he said he would do, and in this sport, a lot of times that's not the the priority, and uh, and we try we got a few sponsors here and there, but he but he basically ran the whole deal out of his pocket that year, and we were able to put together some. Sponsorship for ninety nine, and then and then two thousand really got some good stuff, and got you know uh, Jeff Green over there, and, and was able to form what was then PPC Racing.
1: What was your reaction when he brought Jeff in as your teammate in ninety nine? You had been used to being the only rooster in the hen house, so to speak, but all of a sudden here's Jeff in the mix, and Jeff is obviously very competitive. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction?
3: I don't know that I really had a reaction. I mean, I really don't. I know he and Harold Holly hit it off big time, right off the get-go. I mean, they hit it off big time. And they were kicking our butts. I mean, I, they just were. I mean, I'm not yeah. trying to say they weren't. I mean, we won, we won some races and um, was able to get uh, Steve Addington back in. And that's when we started trying to mend our relationship you won, and Steve, me and Steve, yeah, and we were, we were, we were getting there, and I thought we got there, um, um, and I really felt like we were going to carry the torch of winning the championship the year after Jeff did, and uh, unfortunately we had some motor issues there at the end of the year, uh, kind of halfway through the season, uh, broke four motors, we were leading the points, and I didn't, I didn't feel like anybody can beat me. I didn't care Greg Biffle, or anybody. I just, I knew at that time that. This was my this was my year, I just knew it. And uh, you you thought that what was your year? Two thousand? No, two thousand one. Two thousand. Was it one or two when Biffle won the championship? What year did Biffle win the championship? Two, two. Two thousand two was a year I felt like we were, you know. And I won Rockingham early that year, and I was just like, "This is supposed to." You know, this is this is you know. Jeff had gone on to run cup a cup, and uh, uh, Riggs was my teammate now, and. Now I'm the elder statesman in the team and won Rockingham by half a track and just cruising. And And I don't want to say it became easy, but it became the normal thing to to run in the top three. If we weren't in the top three or top five, we were not comfortable. And we had some mechanical issues to the end of the year. I'm not going to talk about that, but uh, we had some mechanical issues uh uh, had some motors let us down, and and uh, that wasn't typical for our engine builder at that time because they were pretty much bulletproof, and uh, wasn't able to win uh, the championship. And proud of what I did, but just don't have the trophy and the and the and the big ring to show for it. But uh, uh, it was uh, it was
1: uh, a, a letdown. But yes, that's the way racing is. I do want to go back and and ask. I know at one point. Progressive Motorsports was your team, and then whatever happened with PPC, what happened there?
3: There was a lot of things behind the scenes. At that time, I was trying to focus on my family and and just make it to the racetrack, and I was actually been a driver at that time. There was a lot of things happening partnership-wise with Greg, um, uh, different things that were a little bit out of my control, out of my handle, Man, if I showed up, my name was still over the door. I was happy, you know. Everything was rock and roll, and I was good. And and uh, and I will say this: through all of that, Greg Pollock stayed true to me what he said he would do. And I really couldn't ask of anything else, you know. Um, even when I had an opportunity to leave, Greg, we were we were being we were being promised a pretty good sponsor after. The Albertsons um, sponsorship left. He was being Greg was been you know promised the world if I stayed there and and we were, I was being offered an opportunity to go with a Cup team, to run a partial Bush deal and some Cup races, and I felt like that it was my time to probably do that, and and I rem, I rem, but Greg kept you know. Telling me just to wait, you know, wait, the sponsorship coming, coming, you know, it's coming, coming, coming. Well, I remember having to go to Richard Childress's motorhome in Atlanta, in the infield, on a Thursday afternoon, and telling him that I wasn't going to take his offer to share a season with Harvick and the Reese car. And... After Atlanta on that Tuesday, I found out the sponsor wasn't coming
1: to PPC. And now, what year would that have been? 2000. That would have been the end of 2000.
3: No, that would have been that was after the, the Albertsons deal. So we're pushing up to about 2003 now. Okay. All 2003 right. yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I called my buddy, uh, Mike Dillon, who I'd raced with a lot, and uh, they had hired Clint Boyer that day. Uh, so that was a missed opportunity, but I don't I don't say it was a regret because Greg was staying true to what he said yeah. he would do, and we were able to put together a, a partial sponsorship for the following year, the Miller High Life sponsorship, and and he ran the rest of the races out of his pocket basically because he felt so bad about taking that away from you know that opportunity away, but. I'll never say anything negative about Greg and what he what he stayed true to me yeah. I and mean, I'll never say anything negative about that. I just I would love to see how that opportunity developed because you know there was a lot of and that was one of the probably the only decision in racing that I that I made and I didn't listen to my dad. Really? Yes. My dad and I had gone to welcome uh, the week prior and um when we left there he said uh, he said uh, I'm sure you're gonna do this. You gotta do this. I'm like, well no, nah, I'm I'm a full time racer, I'm not a part time racer, I'm a full time racer, I'm gonna win a championship. And I think that lingering in twenty two was kind of still that lingering. I think things probably would have gone a little differently had I had the had you know had the trophy and, and the and the championship then. I don't know that. I'm just yeah. you know, speculating, but I can remember Uh, my dad said, you got to do this. Well, you know, we got this sponsor supposed to come in full time. I want to run full time. You know, this is what I'm, you know, what I want to do. And I don't want to be a part timer.
1: And what was the sponsor? Do you remember
3: at the time? Yeah. Um,
1: the one that you didn't get,
3: um, trim spa, the but trim spa. Really? They're going to have two cars. They want to sponsor Kenny and myself. Hmm. Sure was. So don't take that as a regret. I just wish yeah. I would have I w- I yeah, yeah, yeah. seen how that one was going to go. Yeah. And I can I can remember shaking in my boots when I had to walk in and tell Mr. Childress I wasn't going to take the ride. All right.
1: So the year 2000, you and Jeff are teammates, and Jeff proceeds to put a holy whooping on everybody. Mm-hmm. That was one of the craziest things I'd ever been a part of, just – Seeing how dominant that team was, mm-hmm. you were also running well. We were a top
3: five car every week, but he was winning every week.
1: Yeah, so I mean, there was a difference. Was there a frustration for you, or were you okay?
3: No, I, I was. A, I mean, it was a it was a frustration for me. But but Harold Holly and Greg Harold Holly was Jeff Green's crew chief at the time. He he was Greg's bring back from the chad little days so that was kind of an instant back
1: yeah jail
3: and jeff jeff's a great I mean, he's a great racer i mean jeff he's hardcore and he was he was a great racer i mean so you couldn't take that away from them at all it was it was definitely frustrating um i'd brought like i say at that time i'd brought I'd, I'd asked to bring uh steve back and able to bring him back and, and we were doing well. I mean, we just got the Fords, uh the Ford deal, and at that time the only Ford that was in the in the Bush series was Mark Martin and every time he was on the track he won. Yeah and that's unheard of these days. You don't see that, you know, uh and the number of cup guys in the, in the Bush series. But I was okay with it after we progressed and when, you know, Harold when 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 Jeff went on and Harold got Riggs, who was a great racer himself, that showed to where they didn't gel quite as much, try, quite as good as it, it just clicked. For I mean, I'm not trying to make excuses. We got yeah. our butts kicked. I mean, we yeah. got, I mean, we did. I mean, the cars were built on his cars were built on one side of the shop, mine were on the other. And I felt like Steve and I were, were building something that we could work into. And I think that's where the culmination in in, in 22. Then we were like, okay, here we are we're going to win this championship you
1: are saying 22 you mean 02 02 okay. excuse me yeah. i'm sorry 02 okay okay right.
3: and and so i felt like it had kind of progressed as as a little later for us to kind of come into everything and 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 come into what and uh uh i can remember going and testing with with Harold um, going with us, some to our test. And Steve Addington would always tell me, well, when Harold makes the changes, you go faster. And and I really didn't know that that was the case. But I saw how fast he and Jeff were, so I knew that I had to pick up the pace. If, if he was there, I had to pick up the pace. So there was a, little, a lot of inner team, not struggles, but there were a little bit of a of a edginess, a little bit, you know, and and then and then I keep going back to O because I'm like, okay, I I put all my childhood differences with Steve apart, you know, behind and 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 Steve at that time was doing a great job. He was doing a phenomenal job, and I just felt like we were, for once, there was nothing going to take us, you know, you know, really stop us. I felt like we were going to, you know. Uh, do good things, and, and we did.
1: We, we we started off great. All right, so 2002, mm-hmm. you went four races. Mm-hmm. What was the difference?
3: It was just the confidence in each other, and and um, as a driver, I don't look at winning the four races. I look at the five other races that we had opportunities to win, and that would have put us on the year sort of what jeff and harold had a couple of years prior to that but it just didn't go our way you know like i say it was some so, it really wasn't really part of our doings it was it was more of the mechanical failures and different things that i mean when you when you're running in the top four i usually say top five top four in four races and brake motors it's kind of hard to to overcome that at the end of the year but the difference was just the cars were being built the same. um mm-hmm. And, and we were just, uh, we were just in, in, you you hear of a lot of the bigger combinations, Jimmy Johnson and Chad Knauss and, and all these, you know, wonderful combinations. And we weren't, I'm I'm not trying to equate what we were doing to them, but we felt like when we unloaded, we were not going to be a top five car. We were going to, we were going to, you know, potentially win the race and, um, and and we showed that early on, and when you show it early on in a year, it just
1: carries through the year. Carries through. Probably the most bizarre race I've ever personally covered was Talladega in 2002. My brother was there. Only race he's ever been to in his life. <laughs> uh, Talladega's great, man. It's the most exciting race. You, you, you just won't believe it. And what, 10th lap or so? Thirty cars wreck, and that puts you in the lead, and you're out there by yourself, basically.
3: Well, as myself and uh, and Stacy Compton, fifty nine car.
1: Yeah, and Tim Fedewa,
3: and and Fedewa was was a little bit behind us, but uh, if you remember that happening, we had just rolled. Kenny Wallace was leading the race. Yeah, and Compton and I, we had drafted all day the day before in practice. And he was starting right there with me, and I knew that he was my ticket to get to the front. So I shoved him. I'm talking about beat the back bumper off his car. And we had just rolled the outside of, of Kenny getting into one and rolling around him on the outside. And if, if you look back at, at that wreck, Kenny loses it on the bottom. He gets bumped and loses it on the bottom and, does, and misses the rear bumper of my car by inches and takes everybody out behind me. Yeah. I can remember my dad spotting on the back straightaway and going, "I don't see a car coming through the wreck yet." Yeah. You know, we're already almost down into 3. And that was a very bizarre race, but um I got the trophy for that one anyway, you know, so a- Was
1: that was that like the longest test session that you'd ever had because you weren't racing? Well, we were. Because
3: because in Addington actually I'll give I give Steve credit for this Addington made the call that put us in front of the 59 we didn't have enough push support to drive by the 59 Stacy Stacy yeah. yeah I'm yeah. sorry Compton so it's, it was it was whoever came out of the pits was going to win the race ahead yeah well Steve actually pitted me one lap earlier than he had already told the 59 guys, Compton guys, that we were going to pit, and I just, I guess a half a second or so better pit stop, and we were able when when Compton pitted the next lap, we were able to to, to beat him out of pits, and uh, so Steve actually, as as unexciting as that race was, there was excitement that well once we got in front of the 59 or the Stacy, we were just riding that's right and I could remember that race I'll tell you a side note on that. I'm pretty sure it was Purvis they were interviewed he was sitting on the back of his truck they were interviewing him on TV you know you know how long that takes for a driver to get out of the car, go sit on the back of his, his hauler and yet you know's had to sit there drinking water and I remember them interviewing saying, well, you're still in, top, in a, in a top-ten position if you can get your car back out on the racetrack. <laughs> and I'm going, <laughs> yeah. that's how, big, that's how long yeah. that was, you know. Yeah. So, uh, wow. And you mentioned Fido. Well, was going to do a starting park. Yeah. And that's why I got his feet burned so bad because he wasn't even planning to race.
1: Yeah, his yeah. feet were crispy. Bad. Crispy bad. after the race. Yes, bad. How big of a disappointment was it at the end of the year that you didn't come away with that championship?
3: Oh, it was, it was devastating. I mean, we—I I just knew that it was ours, and I, I'm not taking anything away from Biffle and his team, but I didn't—I wasn't really focused on anybody else. I mean, we were just—it was one of those years to where when things go right, you don't look at anybody else. You only—you focus on yourself, and you—if you—if you finish sixth and think you should have finished second, and—and and you just go, well, we should have finished you know, a lot better. And at that time, we were racing sometimes against 20 cup guys on a given weekend. It wasn't like we were just, I was racing against Greg Biffle. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were sizing ourselves up against the heat. I mean, we're the big boys. And, and, and that was tough, you know, but we were able to do that. And, and um, it just, uh it, that was a different era in the Bush series of where we are now. But I, it was and I really felt like that's what – you know, I go back to the, the earlier comments. I really felt like that's kind of what made some of my future decisions after that because I really – but I just never could get back to that click, you know, that, that you know. And I don't know why. And I don't know if if anybody else in that, you know, uh, I think any sports teams, may they may not be able to explain why. Why is it so easy to – throw strikes on on a given night besides, you know, six inches off the plate. And it's just – and I don't want to say it was easy because everybody was working their tails off, but
1: it just seemed like everything we touched was was good. All right, I'm just going to ask, and don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) But a little birdie told me at one point back then that the team, the organization, had at the very least tested – Traction control. Confirm, deny, or in the interview? I I can
3: say this. If we ever had traction control, and I'll go to my grave saying this, I didn't know it. Okay. Um, It was very, in the industry, when you start winning like we were doing. Yeah. Jeff started it. Riggs came on in and and won races, and, and, and we were winning races. I can remember racing at Milwaukee and um, I can remember Gary Nelson. We were on the, on the front straightaway getting ready to start the race. And I either qualified on the pole or outside pole. And I can remember him almost being in the right side of my car when I started the car. Really? And after that race, I, and, and, and actually, I can remember before I got in the car a NASCAR official came over and, and asked me if I had anything in my pockets. And wow. I didn't. And Nelson was on the front straight away. And I can remember when the car parked after the race, they took all the electronics out of the car. That's how much it was semi or, or that was thought of at that time. Uh, and there was a lot of that going on in, in the, in the yeah.
1: business. It, it, you know. Harold – I talked to Harold Holly for the show, and he said after Jeff won, I think, Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. Which uh,
3: he shouldn't have won. The, okay. <laughs> all right. I got taken out by Phil Parson, but that's not yeah, the Yeah, okay. okay. All, okay, all right, I'm I got sorry. you.
1: Sorry, sorry to bring that up. But anyway, um, he said that, that Mike Helton was there, and Mike Helton had come basically to catch somebody with traction control. And after – Jeff won that race. Harold said that they tore his car down. He said that they put the rollers on the chassis to get it back into the truck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Basically took the car back to the shop in in a bucket.
3: Yeah, several times that happened. Yep.
1: Yep. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway. America's racing show place. Last week, we talked about Jason Keller being one of the sports all-time good guys, but this episode, we're starting off with Dale Earnhardt Jr. vowing payback for getting into him at Myrtle Beach in his first ever start in the Bush series. Now, according to Jason, he wasn't focused on Dell Jr. at the time. He was feeling a lot of pressure with Slim Jim as his sponsor, one of the most high profile financial backers in the Bush series. They'd won championships with both Bobby Labonte and David Green. And Jason was just trying to win a race for Slim Jim. Dale Jr. Was in his first Bush series race and hadn't quite become the powerhouse brand that he is today. Now, with all that being said, here's Dale Jr.'s side of the story from episode 50, all the way
2: back in 2019, somehow or another, they said, you know, Dad and them said, you sh- we're going to go run you at the beach. And they had a backup, old backup car of theirs. Again, Jeff Green still driving with Tony Sr. on, on Dad's Xfinity team at that period of time. They gave us a car. And a lot, it was, uh, a lot of the guys that went to help us were mechanics and, and shop guys, people that didn't travel um, that, uh, you know, wanted to help us. And we had a patchwork cr- group. And it cost us on pit road. We got lapped, you know, on pit road. Wesley was changing tires. He'd never changed tires before. <laughs> but we got yeah. lapped on pit road, and that and that's how we got a lap down. We ended up 14th, and we were fast. We were really fast. We qualified seventh, I think, and we were passing for six when Jason Keller and I got together in turn four, and we spun out. And I had Jason Keller sort of in the back of my mind for the rest of my career, like I was going to get him back, you know? Jason Keller. I know it. <laughs> I was, well, he – so we go – long story short, yeah. I'm rambling here, but – we qualified really good, and I'm like, I'm like, man, this is great. You know, I'm I'm I can do this. I can I can do this, and I know we're at Myrtle Beach, a track that I'd ran at for three years in the late models. But I felt like, wow, I'm I'm running against some of the best guys in this series. And the race starts, and I didn't know anything about saving tires. I'd been running at Myrtle Beach for three years, still ain't figured out how to save tires, and that's that's a track yeah. that yeah. is imperative that you save. I was I had not learned that yet, really understood that 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 sort of strategy and I'm out there running as hard as I can and I know they probably weren't Jeff and and Jason weren't really giving it all they had but I was running over them right trying not to I was re- I was just running over them so fast and I just couldn't really get underneath either one of them to make a pass well Jeff Green popped Jason Keller in the back going into turn three and shot Jason way up the track and Jason came straight down the track to hit Jeff in the door and missed intentionally he was coming down the track <laughs> because he was hot after Jeff Green. Okay. All and right. I was tucked under Jeff Green's bumper. And he came down into the right side of my car. And it just turned me right around. So I hit Jason in the left rear tire. And Jason's you know, it just spun me right out coming off of turn four. And I was so mad because I'm sitting there in great position. The race ain't 20, 30 laps old. And here I am spun out. Now I got to go to the back. And uh, we came down Pitt Road, got lat. You know th- I'm going to have to call Jason and get his side of this story. Sure. <laughs> uh, for the rest of – you know, for, for the much – you know, for many years beyond that, I was thinking I'm going to get Jason Keller back one day. You know, and eventually I, I matured and thought he – you know, he probably had no idea I was even there. Yeah. But – yeah. Um, obviously, I never got him back. But we had a great run. We – I spun some people out too that day, feet ten feet away, I think. (laughs) So I'm sure I made a few guys mad myself. But we had a that that was sort of the moment where I went, man, you know, I can I'm fast enough, right? I might not know how to put the whole race together, but but I'm not slow, you know. And you never know that until you really get out there and get to run against those guys. I don't know that I remember this part of Jason's story, but Slim Jim wanted Jason
1: to move to another probably maybe more established team, but he wanted to make a go of it with his own deal. So Slim Jim went away. And when Jason wasn't able to put anything else into place, along came Greg Pollux, who had been a part owner of Chad Little's team that had been so successful in the mid 1990s. And they actually started progressive motorsports with a lot of Jason's equipment. And Greg was very good to Jason. Greg ran the team out of his own pocket that first year, Jeff Green is very loyal to Greg. Harold Holly would take a bullet for Greg. And here's the thing. Greg and I didn't always see eye to eye. There was one point where both he and Jeff let me know in no uncertain terms that nobody from their team would ever speak to me again.
4: Which begs the question, Rick, Jeff, what did you do? (laughs) (laughs) I claim innocence. I'm innocent. I tell
1: you, I'm innocent. Yeah, but they all say that. But if you weren't for Greg, he seemed to have a lot of people who were very loyal to him. Now, come to think of it, everybody else seemed to get along with Greg. You don't think our issues could have been caused because I was in the wrong, do you? Surely not.
4: <laughs> come on, Rick. Something is up here, and you're going <laughs> to have to confess.
1: <laughs> I don't. And honestly, and truly, I don't remember what exactly the issues were. It was something having to do with Progressive Motorsports and PPC being different teams or the same team, and me writing whatever I wrote, and whatever I wrote did not please Greg. All right, yeah, 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 you yeah, can yeah, stop
4: right now. Yeah. I'm already confused. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jason finished second in the standings to his teammate Jeff Green in 2000, but it was a distant second. Statistically, 2002 was Jason's best year, and again. He was runner-up in the championship battle, this time to Greg Biffle, basically because of some engine issues that cropped up. You can imagine the frustration that Jason must have felt. Tommy Houston never won a Bush Series championship. He came very close in 1989, but ultimately lost out to Rob Moroso. Kenny Wallace came close to winning the Bush Series championship in 1991, but got hurt at New Hampshire and eventually wound up second to Bobby Labonte. The three drivers that held the record for most starts in the Bush series, nationwide series, expanded series, never won a championship. Tommy he held that record, then Jason, and then Kenny eclipsed it.
4: Now, this sounds like a similar story to a driver in the Winston Cup series. We have talked about often as being the winningest driver and a guy who won a ton of races on the Winston Cup circuit, yet never won a championship. And you know whose name always comes up here, Mark Martin, right? And or Junior
1: Johnson. That's true, too. You can't take anything away from either one of their resumes at all, period. I don't think that you can take anything away from Jason or
4: Tommy or Kenny. I agree 100%.
1: And for Jason, the Winston Cup opportunity was there. He was balancing an offer to drive a limited cup schedule in 2004 for Richard Childress against a Bush series deal back with Greg Pollux. They thought that they had a good sponsorship deal on the line. And because Jason was uber loyal to Greg, he went to Richard at Atlanta and turned that deal down. And then the Tuesday after Atlanta, the sponsorship for Greg's deal fell through. That is
4: absolutely the worst thing that can happen to any driver. You turn down What's going to be a very good Winston Cup deal to stay with your team because it's getting a great sponsor. And then the sponsor falls through. And you're standing there with nothing, nothing. Jason
1: immediately called Mike Dillon at RCR to see if he could salvage that ride. And they had already hired Clint Boyer that
4: day. Surely at this point, Rick, Jason must have felt he was out in the cold. However, things would change for the better.
1: Hey, race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling,
2: with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48 week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics
1: and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu
2: NASCAR today.
1: NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. April fifteenth, nineteen 1999, issue of Winston Cup scene. Rusty Wallace led 425 laps in the Food City 500 at Bristol. But he had to work to keep Mark Martin at bay in the 18 laps following the final restart. Rusty said, Mark Martin, that's the guy I'm thinking about. He got four sticker tires at the end and was really mowing me down, but I had to hold on. He got there and I held him off. This car, it's a brand new car. Penske South built it for me and man, did it run. That engine was strong. She's a hot rod. We named the car banker because it's good on these high bank tracks. And she brought home the money today.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Very witty.
1: This was Rusty's seventh win at Bristol. And who could ever forget his April 1993 victory there when he did the backward victory lap in memory of Alan Kowicki, who had died three days before. And sure enough, Rusty did the backward victory lap again this time around. Rusty said, personally, I was just so sick of everybody going to the start finish line and spinning around and doing a bunch of donuts. To me, it was ridiculous. And every time they do it, I'd shut the TV off. I said, man, when I win next, and if I wouldn't had the rain delay at Phoenix, I would have done it there because that was the first race Alan won. I had that in mind, but the rain delay came and I couldn't do it there. But then again, the day he died was right here at Bristol and I won the race. So when I won, the whole crew just yelled across the radio, do the Polish victory lap. It wasn't spin around and do all this. I wanted to do something that was meaningful to the fans that they can remember.
4: They certainly did appreciate it as well. As you know, Rick, I don't remember much about that Bristol race for obvious reasons, but I do remember Rusty pulling around and doing the Polish victory lap. I had never seen a more enthusiastic crowd when he did it.
1: I have no memory of it, but I actually wrote the Winston Cup race lead for this race, and that was kind of a big thing for me. I don't know that I wrote more than maybe three or four my entire time it seemed because, you know, I always handled the Bush series coverage. I wrote the race lead for those races. So if I stuck around for the cup race, I was usually assigned a sidebar or two or three, but very rarely did I get to write a cup race lead. I know that I wrote the race lead when Ernie Irvin won at New Hampshire, his comeback win, his first win after getting hurt. And I know I wrote this one and I know I wrote the Winston cup race lead. My last race with Scene which was also here at Bristol. But other than that, I can't remember many, if any, that I ever wrote.
4: Well, Rick, there was a reason for that. You did cover the Bush series. You wrote the Bush series lead. You wrote a whole lot of Bush series features, everything associated with that circuit. And I personally didn't think it was very fair to keep you around the next day to write another lead. And I knew you were very enthusiastic about writing something. So it always gave you a good sidebar too. But that was the reason you didn't write too many leads.
1: You always gave me the Dell Earnhardt sidebar. (laughs) (laughs) Only when you'd been a bad boy. (laughs) I believe I would rather have had the race lead. (laughs) (laughs) Because I wrote the race lead for the Winston Cup race, I was in the press box for both races that weekend. Now, I don't remember writing the Winston Cup race lead, but I do remember this very vividly. After the cup race, Wayne Estes in turn three, Rusty's coming the wrong way around the track, doing the backward victory lap. Everybody in the infield is about to pile across the track, trying to leave there at the crossover gate in turn three. To this day, I can see Wayne running across the racetrack, throwing his hands up and frantically trying to stop everybody from running across the track while Rusty's headed their way. Now, if Rusty had a plowed into that big crowd, Steve, I believe that would have been some paperwork. Now, I do know this. I don't know how long it was after this, but Bristol now has a pedestrian tunnel under turn three.
4: Yeah, as does Martin's. Well, and Richmond has one as well, but not in the third turn.
1: There were a number of walking wounded at Bristol after getting banged up at Texas the week before. And if there's any one place in NASCAR that you don't want to drive when you're not feeling well, it is Bristol Motor Speedway. Jeff Gordon started second, and finished sixth at Bristol despite sustaining a concussion and severe bruising at Texas. Jeff said, I'm not 100%. I feel like I'm 90%, and to me, at Bristol, even when you're 100%, it's not easy. Physically, Bristol is the most demanding track on the circuit. I think mentally, Darlington is probably the toughest and also tough on the equipment. This place isn't kind to equipment either because you're so close to the competitors out there, you can get caught up in a wreck real quick. This place in Darlington are tough places. Now, Steve, listen to Jeff's description of the accident at Texas. Seconds before I hit the wall, I realized I was still going pretty fast. You just hold on to the steering wheel and kind of hold your breath. That's probably the worst thing you do because it knocks the wind out of you. When I hit, I couldn't believe how far and how much of an impact it was. As soon as I hit, I came off the wall and I was in pain. It knocked the wind out of me and I was kind of grunting, trying to hold on for however long it was going to take to get stopped. Then when I came across the track, I was hoping nobody would hit me in the door. I kind of tumbled through the grass there a little bit and bumped through the grass and every one of those little bumps was hurting. As soon as I got stopped, I was just trying to catch my breath. I looked down and the steering wheel was over here and the headrest was laid over and the seat was laid over. I was just trying to get my bearings. I wasn't knocked out or anything. The adrenaline was flowing that time. I didn't realize I was hurt and sore until I got out of the car. In today's NASCAR, Jeff does not race at Bristol. And that is a very good thing. He had a concussion and severe bruising, so not only is he endangering himself, there's also other competitors to consider if he's hurting that bad, he's not going to be able to physically react the way that he normally would and possibly plow right into a crash when otherwise he could have avoided it.
4: Yeah, Rick, you're exactly right. NASCAR has a protocol when it comes to concussions, and that means you don't race until you are totally cleared by a doctor. Now, that makes a great deal of difference. Not only in the driver's ability to race, but it also protects the other drivers out there with him.
1: Don't ever talk to me about racing back when men were real men. I hate that crap
4: when it comes to safety. here, here, You are I hate that. it. You're 100% right, Rick.
1: Mike Skinner sustained a broken shoulder blade at Texas for the second year in a row. He ran the entire race at Bristol and he finished 21st. Jimmy Spencer bruised his back, hand, and ribs at Texas and eventually turned his car over to Steve Grissom at Bristol. Jimmy said, we taped my ribs and it was a little too tight. Being here in Bristol, it just kept putting on too much pressure. I couldn't stand the pain any longer. I kept trying to breathe differently, but I'd lose my rhythm and I said, man, this is not going to work out. Then I said I would just wait for the next caution. I told the guys, guys, I'm out of breath. There's nothing wrong with the car. I can't breathe and I'm getting dizzy. I just feel really bad because we had a really good race car. And I think we had a car capable of running in the top five. I'm very, very upset over it.
4: Well, you can understand Jimmy being upset because he wanted to race. But I tell you something, Rick, about those rib injuries, the pain is intense. And as Jimmy described, one problem you have with a rib injury Is the pressure it puts on the lung area and makes it difficult to breathe. And when it's that difficult to breathe, you just have to get out of the car.
1: Jason Keller won the weekend's Bush Series event. It was his first victory since August, 1995 at Indianapolis Raceway Park, which we discussed last week. Jason got by Dale Earnhardt Jr. in turn two on lap 233, and he led the rest of the way. Jason said, I bet the phone's ringing off the hook back home. It's really exciting to win. I get a lot of questions about the Winston Cup guys running the Busch Series races. There wasn't a ton of them in there today, but the ones that were there today, we outran. A lot of media and people were here that maybe thought Jason Keller was washed up over the last couple of years. Race car drivers aren't magicians. We can only do with what we've got to do with. I had a great car, great pit stops. And I won the race today. Jason's progressive motorsports teammate, Jeff Green, had won the organization's first race on April 3rd at Nashville. But here at Bristol, he was knocked out of contention for the win when he and Jeff Bodine got into a little bit of a scrape. Jeff parked his car with about five laps to go, got out, and ran to Jeff's holler with several of his crew guys. Jeff said, I got into the corner. I was on new tires, and I got into the back of Jeff a little bit. I'm going to call him Jeff. I turned him sideways, but I let him gather it back up. And he opened a hole up on the bottom and I shot in there and he proceeded to turn left into me and put his throttle wide open and wrecked Jeff green. I have no room for it. The Winston cup guys are welcome to race with us. I have no welcome for Jeff Bodine. He took the field out at Atlanta. He took Jeff green out of the top five today. He has nothing to lose. I can see where he's at. He's out making money. I'm out to win a championship. He's pretty low in my heart right now. I had a talk with him. He didn't want to talk about it. He's a Winston cup guy, so he can get away with that. I guess you can't race around Jeff Bodine. You can race around other people, but not him. I seen those guys wreck and I didn't want to be one of them. The hole opened. I shot into it and I never believed it would close like that. It wouldn't have closed if the guy knew what he was doing. He said, I didn't know how to drive, but I feel like all the wrecks that's ever happened have been around him. I don't think he's doing his job. Maybe he is, but I'm not too high on him right now.
4: What Jeff Green said about Jeff Bodine is exactly what many of his fellow competitors also said. They didn't like the Winston Cup guys being in the Bush series for a lot of reasons, one of which was they weren't racing for a championship. They can do what they want to. They're out there just having fun or making money. And if they wreck one of us or two of us or three of us along the way, and we're racing for a championship and our chances are spoiled, they don't care. Now that was a lot of the reasoning they had against Winston Cup guys being in the Bush series. And you know what, Rick, I think a lot of people agree with them. How about you?
1: I have no opinion on the matter. Steve, (laughs) (laughs) Twitch, Twitch, Twitch. (laughs)
4: That's being too diplomatic.
1: (laughs) Jeff Bodine said, I went down to the NASCAR trailer and nobody was there when I was there. So I haven't talked to any official yet about anything. They haven't come to me. So I'm assuming everything is okay. It's okay with me. I'm not sure if it was correct for them to come down and come into the trailer to talk right then, but they did. We handled it right. It's over with. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm a racer, not a fighter. We discussed what happened. Everyone has their opinions. As far as I'm concerned, it's all behind us. Now, Jeff, like you said, can afford to say that. What does he care?
4: What's he he lost? I mean, you know. He's just racing for the paycheck.
1: There's a feature in this issue on Andy Graves, who was serving at the time as Terry Labonte's crew chief at Hendrick Motorsports. And Andy was the crew chief, and he was able to lure his dad, Fred, away from Deller and Hart Incorporated and truck driver Ron Hornaday to help out as the team's shock and chassis specialist. Andy said, I finally get to be his boss after 28 years. We've been really looking forward to this. This sport has gotten to be so time consuming that you don't really have any time to spend with your family. When we sat down and looked for a guy to come in and really help us, a smart guy we knew we could trust 100% and who didn't want to come in and take anybody's job." If you add that on top of being able to spend some time with him, it was a perfect fit. Fred said, working with Andy was a major factor. Ron and I got along really good, and I really liked working for Earnhardt's organization. But it was just the fact that after seven or eight years being down here, Andy and I were finally going to be able to do something together. We had never had that chance before. It was something I had always thought about. I think every father would like to work with his son if the opportunity came up and you can be successful at it.
4: Now, there's a perfect example of a father and son working together for the sake of working together, not caring who was the boss and who wouldn't. I just think that was a terrific thing for Andy and Fred.
1: Another feature story in this issue focused on the recent celebration of Petty Enterprise's 50th anniversary in the sport and the plans the team had for the future with Kyle's son, Adam. Richard said, what we had been doing was good enough to win races, and by the time we realized what we were doing wasn't winning races, we were so far behind technology-wise, and on the monetary deal, we got behind. We tried to still run it as a family business instead of a corporation. That got us behind with the Roushes and all the big teams. We're still competitive with the people that are no bigger than we are, but we've got people out there that are spending more money and looking at it from a strictly business standpoint, this is our business. So we have to take it a step at a time to make sure we don't go off the edge. Because if we go bankrupt next week, all of us go hungry.
4: Well, that is exactly what many media members thought happened to Petty Enterprises. It was a family team that just fell behind the times. Maybe it was technology, maybe it was money. It was probably both. They just could not keep up with the powerhouse teams of the day. And they had to accept that somewhat because it was a a family business and they could not afford to go out of business. Well, business is business. But speaking of Richard,
1: Walt Disney World in Florida had recently opened an attraction called Test Track, which was a simulated race course. And there's a picture in this issue of Richard going around the track with supermodels Christy Brinkley, Angie Everhart, Frederic, and Carol Alt. Steve, it is
4: good to be the king. <laughs> <laughs> the job does come with its perks, doesn't it? <laughs> now, name something that you and I have never done during our racing careers. I think we can say is right here. <laughs> we never did that. Never had a chance. Steve, Kathy Ireland not only retweeted
1: one of our tweets a couple of years ago, she also follows us.
4: You're on kidding me. X. Yes. You're kidding me. Hi, Kathy. i going to pose for a picture sometime.
1: <laughs> My teenage dreams have come true. Well, most of them. <laughs>
4: Hi, folks, this is Jeff Hammond.
2: Hello, I'm
1: Terry Labani.
4: Hey, race fans, this is Shauna Robinson. I'm Kyle Petty.
1: Hi, I'm Robbie Reiser, and you're listening to the
3: Scene Vault Podcast.
2: Hello,
0: Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com.
1: This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Our ask scene vault question comes this week from Andrew Schmidt. And it is one of those great what if scenarios that we feature so often here on the show. His question is, what would Bobby Allison's career have looked like if he had stayed with junior Johnson after 1972?
4: Now, let me give you some background during that 72 season which Bobby was very successful, won 10 races, almost won the championship. But there were situations during the course of that year that really didn't work right between Junior and Bobby. Bobby had a way of wanting to do things his way. Now, everybody knows that. He can be stubborn about it. So sometimes he would clash with Junior about that. There were other times that Junior thought Bobby wasn't exactly putting his whole heart and effort into what they were doing. Now, given that, when the end of the season arrived, both of their stubbornness got in the way. Junior went out and talked to Cale Yarbrough and got an agreement with Cale to drive the car in 73, but only if Bobby refused. And the way Bobby was informed about it, he got a phone call in the dead of night, and the person at the other end of the phone, I do not think it was Junior, said, what are you going to do next year? Because if you don't come back with us, we've got the greatest stock car driver in the world ready to race with us. And Bobby said, well, why don't you go get him? And hung up the phone. And that ended their relationship. For the years afterward, every time I've talked to him about it, Bobby has said the worst thing he ever did was to quit Junior after one year. He really felt like He could have won more races and more championships before he did, finally, in 1983, had he stayed with Junior. And Junior has said to me directly, no one knows what the records would look like today if Bobby had stuck with us.
1: I don't know how Bobby or Junior or Crew Chief Herb Nab could have been unhappy with a 10-win season.
4: They were not unhappy with. the only thing Bobby was unhappy with was losing it to Richard Petty because he thought that Richard's blue and red car was the car he had to beat. And boy, did they have some race together.
1: I'm gonna have to think if Bobby Allison stays with Junior Johnson for a significant portion of his career, he wins multiple championships. If not the three straight that Cale Yarborough did, with junior between 1976 and 1978. But the fact of the matter is, as you mentioned, Bobby wanted things his way. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of give and take when it came to that kind of thing. And when you were dealing with junior, the ultimate his way or the highway team owner in NASCAR history, Bobby and junior were pretty much an irresistible force meeting an immovable object. Bobby moved around a lot. Once he started running the full schedule, the longest that he ever drove for any one race team was Bud Moore for three years. If he had been able to maintain a relationship with any team for a decent amount of time, I'm thinking he not only wins multiple championships, but he also tops the 100 win plateau for his career and maybe even passes David Pearson for second on the all-time list.
4: I think you're making an excellent point there, Rip, particularly about Bobby moving around so often during his career. Just think if he had stayed with Junior as long as Kale did. Yeah.
1: If he stays with Junior, his resume looks a lot more like Kale's
4: exactly. in terms of championship. So,
1: listeners, if you have any questions for me and or Steve, you can email me at rick at the scene or post on X using the hashtag, hashtag Ask scene Vault. Steve, I'm never going to quit coughing.
2: Oh.
4: I know you've seen a doctor. What do they say?
1: Uh, th- they say that my X-rays are looking better. Oh, all, I, all I know is I'm still coughing. So anyway, I don't know. Steve, you'd be proud of me. I went.
4: I've gone through an entire mason jar of Junior Johnson Moonshine. <laughs> How about that? Not in one sitting, I hope.
1: See? How could anybody drink that crap? <laughs> Good night. It makes my toenails curl. But anyway.